Most bankers aren't ready to help you until after their third cup of coffee. But with Central National Bank's after-hours service, you don't have to wait for the bank lobby to open to get help. You can contact us from 6 to 8.30 in the morning or from 5 to 10 in the evening, and we'll connect you to a real, live, local person who can answer questions and fix problems seven days a week. Bank different. Bank central. Central National Bank. Member FDIC. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Portland Trailblazers fans, I'm Dave Deckard here with Marlo Ferguson, and we are here with Dave and Marlo, your favorite podcast. This is the last podcast that we will do before we know what lottery pick the Trailblazers have, and therefore which way their future is going to go. That will be super exciting, but that is not till next Tuesday. For now, we have to be uh, comfortable and happy with the fact that the Blazers have more company in not being in the playoffs. Uh, Marlo, the Phoenix Suns not only got eliminated last night as we speak by the Denver Nuggets, it wasn't even close in game six. They got blown out down 30 at the half, down 25 at the end of the game, despite Kevin Durant. Of course, they had no DeAndre Ayton. We'll talk about that. Uh, They had no Chris Paul. Um, But they had Devin Booker. They have Kevin Durant and they still got housed. Uh, what is your takeaway from all that? Well, it was an interesting series, uh, definitely. And coming into that game, the Suns were actually uh, favorites to win the game. But I think anyone with a post on this situation, they sort of had to know that, you know, the Nuggets were going to be coming strong in that game, chance to close it out. Um, and, you know, DeAndre Hayden, he had that weird that rib injury that was affecting his breathing on top of the already awkward situation with uh, him literally telling Phoenix, you know, he didn't want to come back, and, and they, they brought him back anyway. You got Devin Booker asking him, did he want to win the game? Um, and the, the, the margin for error for those two, uh, Kevin Durant and Devin Booker, was just so slim that, you know, before the game, they were saying they had to go for 75, 80 points for them to win. So it's just very difficult to put that much pressure on a, on, a, on a, even an all-star Hall of Fame type, type of player. So um, I kind of I thought Denver was going to finish that thing out, and they, they did just that. Well, there's such an emphasis on superstars nowadays, and of course, that is accurate. It's really hard to win without one, okay? But we're also, or we have also entered an era of the league where just having a superstar isn't enough. And I think people got fooled into LeBron James-ism in two ways. First of all, LeBron James was unlike any other superstar, even Durant. And, you know, in James's prime... There wasn't a question between those two. It was always LeBron James and Kevin Durant. It was never Kevin Durant and LeBron James as the two best players in the league. 
Also, I don't know if you noticed, but LeBron had some pretty good players and depth around him, veterans and point guards and all kinds of stuff, right? So I think people got fooled into, well, if LeBron does it, then we just need to get our own superstar. And, and as Phoenix is showing, it's just not quite working that way. Yeah, and, and the playoffs are an entirely different monster. And you look back on, on LeBron's earlier years in Cleveland, you know, it always kind of seemed to catch up to him. He never had that second player that could really take over a game. And if he didn't go for 40 points, you know, they, they probably weren't going to win that game. No respect to his, his teammates. But um, in the postseason, I think you need to have, you know, multiple guys that can step up. I think you need a, a capable third banana, a capable third guy that can come in and, and do well. And Phoenix just didn't have that, you know, without Aiden, Chris Paul being out with the groin injury. Um, it just the margin of error was just so slim for those two guys that they didn't come to play. It's going to be difficult to, to even stand a chance against a, a number one seat like that. Yeah, it's hard because, I mean, theoretically, Phoenix has a really good four, right? You know, I, mean, I don't mean power forward. I mean, the, the four you just named, Paul and uh, Aiton and Booker and Durant. So you think, well, that's enough depth. But as you say, you know, an injury or two, and all of a sudden it's much less. And also, like, all right, well, you got to play eight. You got to play eight players, right? At least uh, eight, to, eight is in the playoffs. So, uh, I mean, what do you have in the infrastructure? And it's almost like having a couple of really good dishes and no table to set them on. It's not going to work. Or uh, a couple of fantastic premium ingredients and no pots to cook them in. Yeah, exactly that. You know, in this a situation they're going to have to think about very deeply this summer. Um, they've got the, the right places, the right uh, players at the top of that, but the depth was always going to be an issue with them, and that's you know sort of the drawbacks of having you know superstars that you have to pay a lot of money to. Sometimes the depth quite isn't there, and you know that that's a, a situation we've seen kind of play out a couple of different times for teams, and nobody got hit harder than Phoenix did this year, so very tough for them. Yeah, I mean, and they've traded away their future, of course. Now I'm not going to doom and gloom it. I mean, would you rather be Phoenix than the Trailblazers right now? Yeah, but. Uh, it's still, there's not a magic wand here. But speaking of magic wands, now, last summer, the hottest name, realistically, potentially coming to Portland, and it was on a little bit on the far edge of reality, it was over the wall, but close enough that people were mentioning him, was DeAndre Ayton. And he was a little bit ungettable at that point for anything Portland was going to offer. This year, he might be more gettable. Uh, if you really want him, now would be the time to make an offer, I'd say. Now, salary-wise, the offer that would have to work would be something along the lines of Simons, Simons and Nurkic, uh, Simons and Little, I think, would both work. But Simons would have to be in there. Uh, is there any way you'd consider that? I think I consider it. Um, Aiden kind of gets a bad rap for, you know, not playing mentally tough enough sometimes. Uh, but I think when you get past the centers that aren't Joel Embiid and Nicole Jokic, you're going to have to take on some flaws, whether you're talking about Carl Anthony Towns, Rudy Gobert, DeAndre Aiden. Like, there's going to be some issues that come with that. And he's a, he's a $100 million man, plus, plus some change, too. Phoenix is saying, basically, that they're going to aggressively shop uh, DeAndre Aiden this, this summer. So I think it's, it's probably their fault because he, he signed with Indiana and then they offered they, uh, signed the offer sheet. So he basically already told them in so many words, like he wanted to move on. So that what happened this year was, was part of their own undoing. But I think, you know, if you have a chance to go get a 24 year old center with some potential, 
Um, I think that what he's able to do, I think it, it, it make the Blazers a little bit more flexible than what they have with Nurkic. So I think you definitely, you take a look at it and see what you can do. Yeah. I mean, look, people say, well, he's making a ton of money. He's making 34 million, which is not insignificant, but this isn't Dame Lillard money. And you're thinking about paying Jeremy Grant 30. So Aiton is in Jeremy Grant land. Uh, I would say Aiton would be a somewhat comparable player to Grant. He's not there. He's not fully developed yet. But he's he's also in Grant's part talent-wise and with the potential to help your team. He's an 18-10 and 10 guy here, even in a somewhat down year. He pay, played 67 games, which for the modern NBA is a lot. Uh, yeah, he's slammed out in the playoffs, but so has Joel Embiid. He's been through a lot of turmoil. He's always been the odd man out. That got worse with Kevin Durant. I, I think there might be potential to take him, put him in a different role, put him in a more central role, and actually have him flourish. Yeah, I, I, I think a change of scenery would be very important for him. I think he's, he's still a, a top 10-ish center, something around that range, especially when he's aggressive and trying to get to the basket. You know, when, he's, when he's kind of settling for the mid-range shot, um, and fading away and whatnot, that's when you start to see the, the ineffectiveness uh, kind of show itself. But I think there's a lot of potential with him still. You know, he's, he's a player that that's, I don't know if he'll ever live up to that to that draft standing because he was drafted during the same year as Luka and those guys. But um, he's, he's done his part. I think he's done his part as a productive, consistent player. Um, and I don't think it's going to be, I don't think it's going to be hard, hard uh, not hard, but easy getting him this offseason. So I think you definitely take a chance on it if you have a shot to. Well, and this is what you got to understand. Like, especially with the Blazers. If you want a guy, you probably can't get a guy. I mean, you can't go to the market and just demand fully cooked prime rib unless you're willing to pay Damian Lillard, right? And, and even that, you know, that makes no sense for either team. What you got to do is you got to get the slightly day old or you got to get the cut of meat that's gone on sale this week, right? And what you got to say is you're the chef. I can make this taste good. I can make this taste like prime rib. And Aiton doesn't have to fulfill his number one lottery status anywhere but Phoenix, because Phoenix is the only team that drafted him. For everyone else, he's going to be the, the guy that you paid X for, and X is much less than the number one overall pick. So no problems there. The Blazers need a center. The Blazers need another talented guy. I mean, he shoots. This was pretty much the worst year of his career. Not quite, but in his worst year, he shot 57% from the field. I mean, come on, uh, this is this is not bad. And he's younger than Nurkic. He's not as multi-talented as Nurkic, but I think he has more potential. Uh, and, and if you're worried about a center who goes up and down, well, you kind of already got one. So I, I get it. You don't want to trade Simons for the same problem, but the Blazers are kind of looking at trading Simons anyway, maybe. Now, speaking of chefing, though, here's the other guy that is getting questions in Phoenix, and that's Monty Williams. Now, I hope that this is just knee-jerk reaction of the day after, but if the Suns fire Monty Williams, would he be enough to make you go, yeah, Chauncey, I know we owe you, and here's the paycheck. Uh, sorry, uh, you did a great job for us for two years in tough circumstances, but we're getting Monty. I think every every option has to be on the table. I think you have to go into this all-season open-minded, if only because you you in two years with Chauncey Billups, you've gone... 27 and 55, and you've gone 33 and 49. So um, in most cases, I think you'd say that's an underachieving season on both ends. So uh, I look at it the same way I look at it with Mike Budenhoser. I think you, you look at every single option, see what you can do. Monty Williams is proving that he's a championship coach. 
um, even despite, you know, losing the finals in 2021. So um, I'm not really, I don't have a super big opinion on it, but I think that, you know, I think he's a guy that can can galvanize players the same way that, you know, we expect Chauncey Billups to. And I think you, you just take a chance on that. They've had a lot of turmoil this year with players and their bad body language and, and some of the stuff going on off the court. So I don't really put everything this year on Monty Williams. But, you know, if you have a chance to go and, and, and get a coach like that, I think you I think you, you, you think about that option for sure. Oh, I, I have feelings. I think you go get him because he will he will help cement the culture that you want that you already say you have. Right. But he is the real deal with that. And I'm not saying Chauncey isn't. He may be. But Monty is like the paragon of that. Monty will probably stay with you long term as long as you want to coach. I don't think he cares if he's in Portland, New Orleans or whatever. He's just, he's going to coach. Monty will be great, great, great with your young players. Uh, he can also manage your veterans. He is perpetually, even in his down years, I would say he's a top five coach in this league. He's certainly one of the ones that you would mention. Uh, he, he's easily the equivalent of Tom Thibodeau, for instance, uh, and, you know, maybe more. So, I mean, Eric Spolstra might be above him. There might be a couple others, but Monty's right there. And there's no doubt about it. And I tweeted, you know, you should, especially if you're the Blazers, I think if he comes free, you just give him a lifetime contract right now. You sign him for the next 10 years and say, whether we rebuild or continue on, uh, this is, you know, you're going to be our guy. And by the way, he has Portland history, of course. Uh, it's just everything you want. Hey, the way you put it, <laughs> I'm a little bit more on board with that. Um, and he definitely, he definitely uh, qualifies as a player's coach. Uh, I don't think that the Blazers would have an issue with that. And, you know, thinking about Chauncey, it's not as if there's a lot of momentum going into next year with him. Like, you weren't looking at, you know, the end of last season and thinking like, oh, okay, next year we're going to have some, some momentum and some things going going for the team. So, if you're able to get him, I think a fresh start for, for both parties, I think is, you know, on the table. Um, and like you said, he's got pulling ties too, so I think it'd be a, 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 a move that signifies that they're serious. So, I'm, I'm, a, I'm on board with it, whatever happens. The... Uh... The only thing you couldn't do is get Williams and Aiton, I think, because that's that's the one mix that isn't quite there. But the other thing with the, we go back to something you said with DeAndre too. I mean, people are forgetting. I'm listening to this talk and like, what you know, no motor and no whatever. And okay, there is room for that criticism. I'm not denying it, but the guy was injured, and I don't see any. <laughs> Look, I don't see any reason to doubt a player who says they are injured without real strong evidence. And Damian Lillard was playing with an abdominal injury for a long time, and we saw the difference it made in his play. Uh, Aiton didn't sit out game six because Aiton didn't want to win. Aiton sat out game six because he had a, a contusion, a rib contusion, which is super, super painful. And if you're having trouble breathing, it's hard to walk around, let alone play NBA basketball. I'm not sure how serious it was. But look, you're downing this guy on a bunch of circumstantial or speculative evidence. There may be some smoke to that fire, but that smoke ain't the whole fire. And I bet the fire's smaller than the smoke. Yeah, I think that's a situation where, you know, they can the media can build a player's reputation and then something happens where it just makes it sound like that's exactly what happened. Um, and from what I heard, he was at the facility all day long trying to get treatment and trying to get right. But if it's difficult to breathe, you know, it's it's... I don't know how you can play, especially when you got to deal with a guy like Nikola Jokic. So um, it's it's tough to think about. Uh, I think that there's maybe some truth to that, like just in terms of the fact that, you know, you can't really teach motor. You can't really teach, you know, work ethic, things like that. But like I said before, if, if there's a chance to get DeAndre Aiden 
and you can you can replace him with Yusuf Nurkic and get younger, get more athletic. I think you take that chance, and, and there's there's problems with any player you get. So I think you take those problems and you just you know you live with those. Well, I mean, isn't there space for Aiton to perform? You said exactly the, the accurate thing. I think that the farther Aiton gets away from the bucket, especially offensively, the more speculative he is. But by the way, I think he can cover territory better than Nurkic. At least, like, let me put it this way. When Nurk is trimmed down and in shape, he actually moves pretty well. That just doesn't happen all the time, yeah? So I think overall, Aiton moves better than Nurkic on defense. I think he's a little more of an intimidator, probably. Although I don't think he's fantastic, but I think he can be good. On offense, look, Jeremy Grant and Shaden Sharp are going to occupy that mid-range space. In fact, Grant kind of flourishes there. Uh, obviously Lillard's on the outside. Sharp can do that too. Where do you need Aiton? You just, you're like, okay, dude, right there in your wheelhouse, we're going to get you the ball. You run a few pick and rolls, but basically you're going to be in there. We're either going to feed you or you offensive rebound and you're going to score your 18 to 20. It's not like you're going to be a 30 point score. Not like we need you to, but we now have a wrinkle in the offense that we didn't before. And by the way, for all the good that Yusuf Nurkic does, Low post moves or by the basket play is not among his strong points. Yeah, it's. I, I think you definitely got to look at that change. I'm looking at the numbers now, and on Spot Track, they have uh, Yusuf Nurkic as the 12th highest paid center, and DeAndre Ayton as the eighth highest paid center. And there's a, a, a big difference between the, the money that they're getting yearly, uh, but not a huge difference there. So, and they're both on a four year deal. So if you have a chance to go get some, go get younger with that, I think you, you take a chance on that. Uh, they'll both be free agents in 2026. And just thinking about the Blazers uh, with Damian Lillard's leadership, you know, he's routinely viewed as the, you know, the best leader in the NBA. So I think that if you have a situation where you could put a player like that, you know, with Lillard, I think it it, it do pretty pretty well for his future. Um, so you know, I'm, I'm on board with it, especially if he's willing to be more aggressive and taking a 23-year-old over a 27-year-old uh, on a similar, you know, yearly year-to-year contract deal. It's it's definitely intriguing. So, you know, I, I'd, I'd be excited about some about 19 million a year difference but again the blazers are already paying money you know uh now simons uh in phoenix that would be interesting because you already got booker and you already got kd and i guess simons would slot into the point guard role uh but he's not a natural point guard entirely but you would have book and simons be ball handlers kind of a twin attack you do without the traditional point guard i think they're gonna try to dump cp3 at this point uh, but you'd have like a super uh, offensive two-pronged attack and then Kevin Durant playing old man, uh, Mr. Smooth, uh, in, in the front court. Uh, Yusuf Nurkic would actually not be terrible, I think, for that setup. I mean, he might be better than Aiton because you expect him to do fewer things and do them better, perhaps. So, I mean, I don't know if Phoenix would go for it. Uh, I'm not sure Simons would help him that much. But then, of course, there's always three-way trades. Yeah, it's something to think about. And if I recall correctly, the Suns don't really run a fast pace. So I think that probably would benefit Nurkic too. Um, looking at the way the Blazers played this year, a lot of times it, it almost felt like he was the last player down the court. And some of that was in the delay, you know, the five-out sets. But he also didn't really have that that the stamina and the energy, it, it felt like. So putting him in there in, in Phoenix and having him run that slow-paced offense, you know, you can run your Spain pick-and-rolls and whatnot, things like that. So it could be a better fit than most people think. Um it, it, I think it just depends on the both sides, what they want to do next year in terms of playing faster, playing playing slower. So something to think about. 
Yeah, it would be interesting if, uh, for instance, Nurkic went to Phoenix and Simons went somewhere else for draft picks that went to Phoenix. So then, you know, Phoenix is getting some capital for the future uh, and maybe a young player. And Nurkic, they might go for that in order for the chance to rebuild or even some role players at this point, which is what they lack. All right, let's move on to uh, series that aren't over. There's uh, one in the East where they play tonight. This is always dangerous because when we speak, and <laughs> we don't know the result. When you're hearing this, you do. But it's interesting to me, actually, I should say, frame this overall, that this time last week, most people were, were considering all these series for dead, and especially earlier in the week, but the three ones, right? It's like, oh, it's over. And it ain't over for any of them except the ones that they, the one that they thought would be over for Phoenix, and it's the wrong way. But we have the Heat uh, and the Knicks. The Heat were up three one. New York was looking terrible. Uh, now all of a sudden, the the Knicks win Game Five, and there is hope. Now they got to win in Miami tonight, which is pretty tough. Uh, but what do you think of that series? And have we learned anything new since last week? I'll say that I'm I'm rooting for the New York Knicks in this series, but I think the longer it goes, uh, the more I'm concerned about them. You look at the box scores for those games, like the only time Quentin Grimes was off the court was during commercial breaks. He played a full uh, 48 minutes late. Uh, I know you remember that possession where he was guarding Jimmy Butler with one leg. So, I mean, like, the heroics only go so far. Jalen Brunson with the same thing. So, kind of interesting to see the, the uh, clashing of the coaching styles with Thibodeau playing this guy's heavy minutes, Coach Bo, you know, going deep into his bench. And, you know, thinking about the Blazers again, I look at Josh Hart. It wasn't even a week ago that he was, you know, a hero in, in game two, and he saved them from losing both games at, uh, at Madison Square Garden. And eight days later, you know, he can't even touch the court 10 minutes. A part of that was foul trouble, but also at the same time, you know, his minutes had dipped before that. So uh, just the, the minute disparity, you know, you're going into a game six, game seven, where your guys are playing 48 minutes, you know, that's tough. So I, I, I worry about the Knicks' energy. And in that game five, they almost blew the lead. You know, and I don't know if fatigue played a role in that, but that's just something that caught my eye. It was just the, the fatigue and, and Coach Bo's, I mean, uh, Coach Thibodeau's rotations and whatnot. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the Knicks are roller coaster, right? And when you roller coaster, you hope to hit it lucky. You don't want to extend it because the longer it goes, the better chance that it's going to go against you. Now, they don't have any chance of taking it less than seven now. I mean, they, they have to go seven games if they're going to win it. The other problem is you got playoff Jimmy. And then you got playoff Julius, and those are two different things, yeah? So, I mean, here's another guy, though, that if the Knicks lose, and this was not last year, but this is a couple years ago, when Julius Randle was just ascending, he had, he's had about a season and a half, if you, if you only slice out the good parts, that were really, really very good and showed some surprising things about him. His maturity, even a little defense, certainly his production. Would you ever consider Julius Randle as a viable trade candidate for the Trailblazers? I think most people know me as, as an open-minded guy where I'm, I'm kind of on board with a lot of stuff, but that's not a, not a trade that I would uh, really want to do. You know, I kind of worry about his, his postseason success. He's a guy that hasn't had a, a postseason in which he shot over 40% yet. Um, and it's just too hit or miss with him, I think. Um, and at 28, with the money he's getting paid, I don't know that there's a, another level he can ascend to. So I would be kind of worried about that. Um, so if you're asking me, I would probably say no. You know, I've gone on this podcast and I've, I've, I've said before that I think Jalen Brunson is the best player on the Knicks. And, you know, I, I fully stand by that. I think that he still is. And, and he, 
we, we've seen it before with Randall in the playoffs. When he's the number one guy, you know, the offense just stagnates and it doesn't look as good. Credit to him. He, he's, he's performed better as over the last couple of weeks as he's gotten healthier. But I don't, as a, as a Blazers observer, I don't think that he would be a, a ideal fit for what the Blazers do, especially if they intend on making a championship run. So, Do you think it's safe to say if Miami wins this series that Jimmy and Bam are off the table? That they're just, you know, you'd have to blow over Miami to get either one of them? I say yeah, because I think it, it would prove that, you know, no matter what situation they've dealt with in the regular season, that they're able to flip the switch and it can be resolved in the uh, it can be resolved in the postseason. You know, coming into you know this year, I remember earlier in the year they were talking about uh, trading Jimmy because of the slow start that they had and and seeing if they can get younger and rebuilding it. And here they are, one game away from the Eastern Conference Finals. So I think they've got a lot of guys that are, are proven, you know, playoff performers. And people forget Tyler Hero is not even playing, so they have another level they can reach when he gets back. So. I think that they're fully all in on their on their team. And Miami's a culture that they don't necessarily like to move players like that. You look at Udonis Haslam and players like that. So I think they, they're probably untouchable at this point if they make it to the Eastern Conference Finals. Yeah, and they keep making runs at the NBA Finals in different, I don't want to say different eras because it hasn't been an era, but there was, there, you know, there was times when the opponents were stronger. There were times when the opponents were weaker. And Miami just keeps coming back. Right, doesn't matter who who is against them; they always have a chance, which is part of their culture, right? But also underlining that their roster is probably not bad. Uh, how about the other one now? Philly goes up three two on Boston, and oh, I have never. Well, the Knicks, the Knicks fan base was worse and louder, right? But the Boston fan base just crumbled. Oh my. Gosh, it was ah uh, the, the the wake was on the way. They had the the coffin ready for display. The booze was out on the table. It was all ready to go. Uh, and then in Game Six, phenomenal game from Tatum. The the Celtics come back, and all of a sudden you blink, and now it's Game Seven is underway on Sunday, and that will be a thriller. Uh, what what do you take from this week in that series? I think the most fun part is that you really never know what you're going to get. Like you mentioned, Jason Tatum had a, a, a great game six. The first three quarters of that game six were, were awful. I think he was like one for 14. Um, and he had a stretch in the uh, across three different games in the first quarter where he was 0 for 15 in the field. So he's a guy that's really been starting off game slow. I think in game seven, if he doesn't come out of the gates, you know, rocking and ready to shoot and ready to score, it's going to be a long night for them. So I think on both sides, you've got star players that, it's just very difficult to know what you're going to get. Very boom or bust. Look at Harden's numbers uh, in the first in the last five games: fourteen percent, twenty-one percent, then sixty-nine percent, fifty percent, and then back twenty-five percent in game uh, game five. So or game six. So you just never know what you're going to get. And the Eastern Conference feels you know extremely wide open, but you know nobody really seems to want to be able to take it. So game seven is going to be a I think it's going to be a great game, but it could be a blowout. It could be a close game. It could be a low-scoring game. It could be a high-scoring game. I think everything is on the table, so it'd be fun to see. So Joel Embiid has gotten dinged sometimes for his playoff performances, and, you know, rightfully so, but he seems to have come alive, especially in this series, right? I mean, his three highest-scoring games of this playoffs have all been against Boston, and uh, I think that he's dispelling some of that, right? I mean, we. Look, he also had a couple of uh, very low-scoring games 
uh, one against Boston, one against Brooklyn. He had 15 and 14. But he's been in the 30s now three times. I, I, I trust him. I mean, I think that, that, look, is he the MVP in the playoffs? No, not yet. I think it's harder. And especially when you're a center. You know, because for all the, the talent that he has, Embiid still likes to operate in defined ways. Okay, He's going to be in the middle of the floor or he's going to be close to the bucket. And that's where he's best. And in the playoffs, when you are the superstar and you have a couple of defined places you operate, guess what's going to happen? The opponent is going to swarm exactly those areas precisely for you. So I, I give him a little more slack than, say, I give a guard or whatever with, a, with the ball in his hands all the time. Do you think Embiid has, has dispelled this, or do you think that he will be ultimately tagged for the loss if Philadelphia doesn't emerge from this series? I'm kind of 50-50. Um, because I think in that in that Brooklyn series in the first round, I thought they 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 kind of swarmed him, made him a playmaker. So now we're just seeing more opportunities for him to be able to score the ball and shoot the ball uh, and be what you know we expect him to be. Um, and I think Boston, you know, despite having you know two defense all defensive caliber centers and Robert Williams and Al Horford, they were content to play him one on one more than Brooklyn was, where they they had guys they sent guys and forced him to make passes to the weak side and whatnot. So um, you look at historically his his some of his best series have come against this very Boston team. He averaged 30 against them in 2020, 23 against them in 2018, and now he's averaging 28 against them. So uh, it's just a, a, an advantageous matchup for him. I think he gets over these big matchups. Um, but I think it's just he's he's it's going to depend on the matchup where he's depending on who he's playing against to decide if it's going to be great. And I think Game Seven is going to be great just because of that. So I'm on board with you a little bit on that. Do you send two players or even two bigs against him in Game Seven? Do you, if you're Boston, do you alter your strategy? Uh, I like what they did in Game Six, where they started Robert Williams. I think if you play bigger, you know, they they put Derek White on the bench, so it definitely made an impact. I think you, you keep that going because it it made Philadelphia a much more half court team, and they weren't able to do the things they wanted to do. So, um, I think that you do run lineups where you run Horford and Williams at the same time, but I think you got to keep mixing it up. Like with great players, you got to keep them guessing. You don't want to run one thing and let them see a, get get into a rhythm. So that'll be a fun subplot to watch for in that series too. So. I assume we agree that Embiid is off the table. We've talked about that before. I mean, that, that ship is... I don't know what kind of drunken stupor Blazers fans got into for a week and a half, but I, I, don't, think that, I don't think there's any way that Philly trades him. Uh, if Boston loses, does Jalen Brown become available? I, w- I think so. I think so. Um, I think it, with Embiid, I agree with you. Um, you don't trade an MVP. You know, you just don't do that. I don't. I can't think of the last MVP that was was dealt the year after. But Jalen Brown, I think it's a situation where I don't know. I don't want to. I don't want to become a mind reader. But I think he kind of knows that. You know, what I'm saying there's a there's another level that he can reach as a player. That's going to be difficult. You know, playing with the starters taking 25 shots tonight. So Portland, I think, is an ideal situation. They've been linked to him before, um, and I'd be absolutely game to see it. You know, I, I'm not sure how the specifics of that would work out, but. I think if you have a chance to go get Jalen Brown, he's a top 20 player in the NBA um, and one of the best, you know, two-way players in the game. So I think that's definitely much more reasonable than Embiid and, and probably, more, probably more doable, too. So. I mean, doesn't Boston have to know that, though? They know what they've got. And if they're trading him, they're not looking to rebuild with Adam on board, right? And Al Horford, for goodness sake. Uh, they're, gonna, they're not going to want a package of young players and draft picks, are they? Probably not, probably not, but um, and I think Brown's going to have some saying that. If you hear him in press conferences, sometimes he'll say stuff like, 
uh, I should have been more aggressive. I should have taken more shots. And that's hard to do when you've got this much talent around you, especially a, a all NBA caliber forward. So uh, I think he, I think he kind of knows, you know, there's, there's more that he can do that he probably can't do, you know, being second fiddle, you know, in fourth quarter of games, it's just, it's hard to do. I notice he takes over games in the first quarter and then he gets a little bit stagnant after that. So um, I don't know. It's just, It'll be interesting to see how the Myers work, you know, this offseason with that situation. But I mean, if they lose this game seven, that'll mean they took a step back compared to where they were last year. So, you know, teams sort of, you know, panic a little bit as we're seeing with Mighty Williams and those teams. So all it takes is one bad series and, and you know, you never know what's going to happen with front offices. So. Yeah, so the Blazers certainly would want to help hope for Boston to lose to shake apart at least one star, right? then uh, maybe there's a three-way going on where Boston doesn't get young players directly, but they get somebody else. Or, you know, the Blazers send uh, Nurkic to, uh, and, and Simons to Phoenix, and Phoenix sends Aiton to Boston, and Boston sends Brown and, uh, you know, some kind of spare center to Portland, and Portland throws in some draft picks. Who knows? Yeah, anyway, uh, that'll, that'll be a pretzel for summer, but, I mean... Having them come loose, having a player come loose is is one thing. Actually, getting him is another. Let's let's close this uh, section on the playoffs with the other series. That oh boy, you know the Warriors are freaking annoying. I mean, and it's not like I'm rooting for one side or another because I cannot root for the Lakers, but that doesn't mean I'm rooting for the Warriors. It's just like <laughs> it's literally like the singles bar at, at closing time, and you're going. Yeah, there are two people left, and no, and no. <laughs> so it's like, uh, but the Lakers go up 3-1. Everybody's panicked, you know, and I don't think this Golden State, and this is the difference a championship makes, boys and girls, and especially like five of them, right? You really didn't hear the Golden State fan base panic, nor did you get any sense of panic from the Warriors. They've been here before, yeah? And they go down 3-1, and... They are, all of a sudden, 3-2. They will play tonight, and no one's counting them out. That's what that championship pedigree does. Do you think Golden State has a chance to win the last two with their cool, uh, competent approach? Uh, I, I give them a good shot, especially if Andrew Wiggins plays. Uh, from what I'm hearing, I'm not sure if he's going to play in Game 6 or not. Um, so that's going to be tough, but... I think they're due for some, uh, I forget what the word is. Uh, very, I think they're due for that. Clay Thompson started out the series extremely well, and he's definitely cooled off. I think Jordan Poole is coming back into his own, and Draymond Green looks to be in, in playoff form. So all series long, I've, I've kind of felt bad for, for Stephen Curry because he's had to be the one to write the checks that his teammates couldn't catch. So now we're seeing a situation now where they're starting to, starting to come along. Hopefully they come along and... They win tonight. There's going to be a lot of three-one jokes, a lot of speculation from that that 2016 series. So, fun stuff. But I, I think I think they get one win and they lose in Game Seven. They're going to lose at home. That's bold. Yeah. So all of a sudden, the other guy, I mean, that we've talked about, Draymond Green, all of a sudden takes over. Yeah, and he does the Draymond Green thing and facilitating the ball, like becomes a hub. Says, "I got this," and all of a sudden, the Lakers are like deer in the headlights. Shows his potential. But shows also two other things, I think. First of all, where is this? You know, where, where, where was this the other 90 games of the season? Uh, and also, this is where, this is how you have to use him. If you want the best Draymond Green, you're not going to be putting the ball in Damian Lillard and Anthony Simons' hands exclusively. 
you're not you can't even do that with Steph and Clay for God's sake, and and they're the best backcourt duo of our era. So are you willing to to make that deal? Like Draymond, we're going to have you come on. We know that you're not always going to want to do this, but we're always going to make you do this, and we're going to hope this works. Yeah, it did definitely have to be a change in philosophy if they did bring on Draymond Green. Um, the Blazers, historically, they've been a team that, you know, they dribble the air out of the basketball. Uh, you look at the numbers, they've ranked in the top 10 in, in terms of uh, Apple's average seconds per dribble um, in like the last like five or six years. So it's, it's definitely a part of the way they play and with the players they've had. So bringing on Draymond Green, I think everybody would have to become more off ball. Um, so it's a big adjustment, but I think that as currently constructed, you, you've seen the, the ceiling to what you can do right now with the way it's working. You know, you play on ball and dribble a lot. So I think they got to be open to different different situations, different styles. Um, and I'd be on board for Jeremiah Green. You know, I think we've talked about it before where we talked about the contract and whatnot and his age and how you got to think about that. But, you know, if the money's right and you're able to kind of fit it in there, I think you you, you take a chance on that. And I think you, you, you got to be open-minded, be open-minded to seeing what you can do. So... We ha- who do you have? Which four do you have coming through now? Uh, I didn't keep track. Uh, you had Lakers, right? Obviously, the Nuggets. Yeah. Nuggets is pretty safe pick at this point. So we have Lakers, Nuggets. And uh, did you pick one in Sixers, Celtics? I'm going, I'm going Celtics. I'm going Celtics at home. Okay. And then Celtics Heat. Oh, my. Yeah, All right. Well, that would be that would be an interesting four. And... Let's see. All four of them have made the conference finals before. At all four of those teams were in the uh, Orlando bubble yeah. the conference finals. Yeah, repeat it. That'd be, yeah, it'd be interesting right there. Yeah. So this time without the uh, isolation. So, okay. Well, that'll be interesting. Do you see, and maybe I'll ask you this again later on in the playoffs, but let's get an early view. Do you see any of these teams or any team you've seen this year becoming a dominant team next year. I mean, one of the one of the hallmarks of this season, um, Milwaukee led the league with 58 wins. There were no 60-win team. And Milwaukee was out in the first round. Every team is in hard-fought playoff battles. You're just literally mixing up. You have no... There's no dominant team. There's no Warriors. There's no, you know, 80s Lakers and Celtics here. Do you see any team that's set to emerge into you know, at least getting ahead of the pack. I think if there is one, um, are you talking about teams that are in the playoffs right now or just in general? Any, anywhere. But I, I, I would have to assume it would be a playoffs team. But if not, go for it. In the playoffs, I would say Denver, just because I, I look at how young they are. You know, Jokic still being in this prime. Uh, Michael Porter Jr. and Jamal Murray still having some ways to go. Uh, so they'd be a team. But I, I'm I'm really nervous about what Sacramento is going to do. I think Sacramento is going to be great next year. Um and then with a lot of the other teams, you know, you look at the, the storylines, everybody's saying this is James Harden's best chance, maybe his last chance. LeBron James is looking for championship number five or, or, yeah, number five. So a lot of these teams are, I think, are on their last legs. So I think the league's going to be wide open next year. Um, I'm trying to think other teams that, that I don't know. I don't know. I, I'd, I'd say probably Sacramento is probably my, my first pick just off the top of my head. I think I'm forgetting a team that's going to be really good next year, but Sacramento will be my team. Maybe you go with um, New Orleans if they stay healthy. They've got CJ and Zion and Ingram and those guys, but those would be my picks right there for those for that. Sure. Well, we'll ask you again towards the end of the playoffs if they lose. And uh, yeah, you can think between now and then. Yeah, I'm 
I'm hard pressed other than the, the youth option like you've named. I'm hard pressed. I don't see anyone with a rocket strapped to them, so to speak. Of course, this year's draft could change that as well. We'll talk more about that next week. But the other big news of the week, I mean, huge news for Portland, all NBA teams named Damian Lillard makes all NBA third team. Well, it's just named guards for a minute. Shai Gilgis Alexander and Luka Doncic were first team. Steph Curry and Donovan Mitchell second. Lillard and De'Aaron Fox third. Anything about that surprise you? Uh, I wouldn't say surprised. Um, I think being a Blazers observer, you, you get sort of disappointed to see that. that Lillard had the season that he had um, and, and finished it with the third team. But the more I looked into it, the more I, I sort of understood why it happened. You know, if you were to compare Lillard, Gildas Alexander, and then the second team guards with uh, Curry and Mitchell, all of them played 50, 56 to 68 games. I think if you were going to make Lillard's case for the first team, I think you'd have to make it just looking at, you know, the, the everything that was on his shoulders. I looked at the on-off swing, and Curry had a plus eight. SGA had a plus five. Uh, Mitchell had a plus one. And Lillard had a plus 13. So that means that the Blazers were 13 points better, you know, with him on the court. Um, you heard me say it before. They had the number one offense with Lillard and the the, the worst offense without him. So it just kind of shows you the, the impact that he had and how much was on his shoulders. Um, but, you know, at the end of the day, uh, I think that it, to do that, you'd be kind of taken away uh, with the, th- the seasons that they had. And I think basketball fans as a whole, they kind of do that where they say, oh, so-and-so deserved this. But you also got to take somebody off that list in order to make that case. So I'm fine with it. I think Lillard had an all-NBA season in, in any sense. So, you know, it's, it's not the end of the world. I'm more I'm more upset about Shaden Sharps so, um, or Ricky Snub, but, you know, complaining gets you nowhere, so. <laughs> yeah, well, I, yeah, it means Lillard is basically a top six guard, although we would have to throw in John Morant, that question. I think it's obvious why Morant didn't make it for at least a couple reasons. Uh, but, I mean, honestly, had had Jaw finished out the season strong and trouble-free, there's a non-zero chance he would have bumped Lillard off of the All-NBA team, I think. So, and I don't, I'm not talking about inherent quality. I'm just talking about how people would vote. So, uh, Doncic, I don't think many people have problems with. Curry, you can't argue with. I think a lot of people would argue that Donovan Mitchell and Damian Lillard were similar. Uh, not, uh, I mean, Mitchell has a better team around him, right? Uh, Fox, it's hard to argue about because of the way Sacramento excelled. Gilgis Alexander, I think, is the one that people have questions about. And maybe it's just because he's new. Uh, maybe it's because Oklahoma City didn't really succeed, right? I mean, they had 40 wins, but they didn't make the playoffs. Um, it's, it's tough, I guess, to see a guy vault from somewhere in the guard rotation, not on all NBA teams, and then all the way to first. Yeah, I, I I vehemently disagree with that notion that you know people that people are saying that uh, Shea Gillis Alexander didn't deserve where he was at. You know that's a team that I feel like really I punched their weight. I think if you were to tell anybody at the start of the year, hey, they're going to run out Gillis Alexander, Josh Giddy, Jalen Williams, Lucas Dort. You know they're they're probably not going to be a playoff team, and they were you know a couple of possessions away from being the A seed in the playoffs. So, um, and the season that he had, I don't think you can take away from it. Uh, he really blossomed into a superstar this year. And I think when you talk about Lillard and those guys, I think that the big thing is that you're arguing, you're arguing, you know, a player that played for a team that was one of the worst in the league compared to one that made the playoffs. 
or came close to making the playoffs. So um, team success and individual individual success, I think they kind of go hand in hand with. Uh, for Lillard, I think if, if Portland had been able to take advantage of that wide open Western Conference and if they had been the fourth or fifth seed, I think by all means he's the first team all NBA. So I think that's what really that and the fact that they kind of surrendered at the end of the year where he was resting and cost himself some games. So that's kind of how I look at it. Yep. Yeah, I don't necessarily disagree with you. That's uh it's just I think shocking to Blazers fans. As you say, you're so close in it. And you realize day to day how good this guy is. And I think the rest of the league doesn't see that. I'm sorry, it just doesn't, you know, the Blazers are not a hot follow, even under the best of circumstances, let alone with what happened to them, you know, after the first few weeks of the So I, you know, I believe that a lot of people missed Lillard. I, I think you saw a lot of opposing commentators a little bit surprised. It's like, oh, Dame, yeah, he's really good. You know, we just got reminded with this 40-point game. Uh, now, Gilgis Alexander, it's not like the Thunder were a hot follow either, but at least he plays a couple hours earlier. And uh, also, you know, he's like the hot name. That's the other thing is Lillard's name is starting to become like wallpaper, I think, to people. He doesn't have the rings that Curry has. Uh, he's There have been false hopes before uh, about how far the Blazers are going to go. And also, his big national moments, the two shots, are, what, four years back now? And uh, eight, right? So that's that's an eternity in the NBA. So they're now historical moments rather than active moments. And I think people are looking that, at that at his age and just starting to go, you know what? Yeah, Damian Lillard. Oh, yeah, I remember him. We should also mention him as one of the better guards in the league rather than going, Damian Lillard, he's the man. Yeah, honestly, I think it's just really that. Um, and, you know, for Blazers supporters, I think it's a situation where you've seen this movie before. You know, this isn't the first time that Lillard's been snubbed um, when he might all-star games, all-NBA teams. It's been a, a pattern of, of situations like that, so... Uh, I think at some point, you know, I think the rest of the world kind of takes him for granted and what he's doing and the fact that he hasn't done this on a national stage in quite some time. So all of that kind of plays a role into it. Uh, but I think that'll be part of his legacy. And when he retires, it's going to be that he was a bit overlooked playing in the generation where it, it was so many different, you know, elite guard talents. Uh, but I think he, at the end of the day, he's an all-NBA superstar. And like you said, if, if John Moran had been healthy, you wouldn't have been probably. So I think you take what you can get there. <laughs> Fight another battle tomorrow. So talk a little bit about Sharp. You think he should have received more notice? Yeah, I think so. He At the end of the year, I think that his, um, the way he was able to sneak into the top 10 in so many different you know rookie categories, he was number seven in points, number four in three-pointers. He was one of 11 rookies with at least 20 steals and 20 blocks. So uh, you look at the players that were ahead of him, he was, I think it was 11 votes off of uh, Tari Eisen. So I think, you know, with all due respect to guys like that, um, and, and Jeremy Sokine too. But respect to those guys, you know, they, it's easier to get those numbers when you're playing for a team that, that knows they're three or four years away from competing and there's not really an expectation. And it's another thing to do it for a team that, you know, is vying for a playoff spot like Portland was for the first 60 games. So, um, and I think if you ask anybody in the league to name the, the five rookies that are, you know, the most likely to, you know, be a star, I think you put Sharp on that list. So he did enough, I think, to make at least the second team. But, it's already a pattern with him, too. You know, at first the, the uh, Rising Stars game and now this, so hopefully it just adds him some wood to the fire. So we'll talk about this as the new season progresses, of course, but early returns, what are you expecting to see from Shaden Sharp in year two? 
I think the big thing is he's going to look a lot more comfortable. Um, there were, I think that's probably goes without saying, but uh, different things that he did earlier in the year, he looked a bit confused on defense. Uh, didn't really show as much comfort in the pick and roll and being able to facilitate. But toward the end of that year, I thought he really looked apart. You know, he looked like a guy that had two or three years under his under his belt. Um, so just kind of understanding that and being able to see that and, and showing he's able to do it, I think it's going to be big for him. And hopefully Portland puts him in a, a better position next year where he can, you know, play the two, play the three, and, and have, you know, better defenders around him too that can kind of ease him up a little bit. And, and uh, I think just the confidence is going to be there. Um, so I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing what he does next year and I would project, you know, maybe 16, 17 points, another big jump and, and, and putting himself in that, uh, most improved conversation. So, yeah, I think a lot of it will depend on the team makeup, right? I mean, there's, there's a big difference if the Blazers come back with the current lineup, uh, if, if they add another star, uh, or if they just kind of bolster it, I mean, look, if, like if they got Aiton and they traded Simons to get him, I see Sharp actually ascending pretty sharply because he'll be one of two points of attack in the, in the backcourt, and there's not going to be a lot between them and Aiton, and Aiton's not going to score 30 usually. So I see that that's a real vote of confidence. Uh, there other thing, Others might not be so much. I mean, Pascal Siakam, we'll talk about him in a second. But uh, if they got him, I think it would be great for the Blazers, and I think Sharp, would would still flourish, but I I would presume the growth curve would be slower then because Siakam's going to take more shots. He's a lot closer to Sharp's position. Uh, I'd love to see it, but I think that he's still in the on deck circle or on the runway and not really dependent on to to help carry the team in that situation. Yeah, that's, I'd, I'd agree with that too. I think we'll either see a situation where they don't get a high usage player where he's able to score more. Or they do get a high usage player and he's able to score more efficiently, even if it doesn't show in like his points per game, he gets easier looks and, and better looks. So, uh, he, I think in his rookie year, he, he kind of showed that he can do a little bit of everything in terms of you know scoring off the catch, scoring off uh, with the ball. So, he set himself up for a, a, a bringing you know year two, regardless of the situation. Uh, but I think next Tuesday is going to decide pretty much everything if they get that number one seed and then they can get win by Yama, or if they can you know trade that pick, whatever happens. I think that's really what's going to decide, you know, his ceiling in terms of just year two. So it'd be fun to see how it goes. Yeah. I mean, it's an interesting thought project because I think most people instinctively think of the choices between Sharp and Simons. And really, if you look at the timing and the skill set, I don't think it is. Or I think I would say that's only the short term choice. Really, it's between Sharp and Dame. And I don't mean that they can't play together. They might for the whole rest of Dame's career. But I think it's likely if you're going to construct the Blazers solidly, that Sharp will only really begin to ascend and excel as Dame begins to descend. And I don't think that's going to happen next year. But you look at Sharp like four years from now, he may be your number one option. If Dame is still here, he's facilitating and shooting threes and he's down to number two, and you've got a really strong front court around them, that's probably the recipe for success. I, I'm not sure the recipe for success is throwing both of them into overdrive right now and saying this is going to work, because I think if you do that, I mean, first of all, there's too much variance in Sharp, and second of all, again, the ball sharing and the questions and all that stuff, I, I'd love to be proven wrong, but my gut feeling says that they're going to build enough 
or, or little enough space around Sharp to where Dame's going to have to leave some before he really fully occupies that space rather than the less rest of the lineup freeing it up for him. That's interesting because I, I look at it the other way where I think it's it's basically between Sharp and Simons. Like I don't think that you can run a, a, a Dame-Simon-Sharp lineup next year and think that defensively it's going to work out. I think that's, that's a situation where it's kind of redundant. We've seen how it works out. Um, and I like your viewpoint. I just I just think that, you know, with, with the way the Blazers' front court was, there was so much pressure put on them because of the way the backcourt defended and, and having to leave their assignments and whatnot. So um, I, I feel like Simons, I think you, he's the perfect guy to kind of trade for a frontcourt piece. Um, you know, and with all due respect to Simons, like I said, I, I'm a huge fan of his, but there's just a better fit somewhere for him, I think, where he's able to, you know, blossom a little bit more offensively, but also be able to have his defensive shortcomings hidden on a different team. And that's kind of hard to do with Portland right now. So I think in a perfect world, you know, you've got Lillard at the one, you got Sharp at the two. Uh, Jeremy Grant, and you've got an assortment of you know athletic athletic bigs in the front court where you can switch everything and, and be more aggressive on defense. Um, so I think it's just hard to do if you have Lillard, Simons, and Sharp in there at the same time because you're not only undersized but also a little bit underdeveloped on defense. So how that works out, I think it's going to be I think it'll be fun either way. But I think the higher ceiling is is comes with trading Simons for a, a front court guy. Yeah, to be clear, I think they're going to trade Simons either way. I'm assuming that they trade Simons for something. But I'm betting that something, I'm hoping that something creates enough of an infrastructure that Simon's growth curve remains modest and that Dame is the one who ends up making room for it over the years. But yeah, I I don't think you can go wrong. I'm sorry, with Sharp's growth curve. I don't think you can go wrong with Sharp at this point. I, I, I assume you think he's the keeper among the two, right? Yeah, I'll say yeah. Yeah. I mean, just because of his stature and there's something about him and look we may be wrong about that but i think simons at his peak probably becomes a slightly more athletic cj mccollum right which is good by the way okay that's nothing to sneeze at and by gosh if you knew that when you drafted him you would have gone hallelujah right okay sharp may not get to that level but Sharp may also become something entirely different. And I think that's what the Blazers need to hope for. Yeah, I, I agree with that 100%. Um, I just, I, I don't know. I just, from, from watching Damon CJ for, for 10 plus years, however long it was, like, they just always seemed to be kind of a ceiling with that if you didn't have the right pieces around them. And you no, know, it's kind of easy to forget they were a top five defense when they had Moharkless and Alfred Kaminu and, and Nurkic. But you've also, you've, you've got to have a situation where, everybody's fully healthy that like they were really healthy that year um and things had to be almost perfect they had to break perfectly for them to be able to be that elite defense um and it's just hard to do with with two undersized guards that are offensively minded um so i think just i, I feel like trading sharp i mean trading simons um not only i think it, it makes it a little bit easier for lillard where you know he's got more help around him if they get the right player he can play better defense too so um, I think all things considered, I think I think you take the risk on Sharp and his ascension as opposed to Simons and, and I don't know. I feel like Simons gets a little bit underregarded in the in like uh, as far as his value. He's a guy that was averaging twenty five points a game earlier in the year, so he's a guy that can he can be the number two guy in your offense. So seeing how that works out is going to be fun too. Yeah, well, I mean that'll be that's the big question, right? Uh, speaking of following up on that, we're almost done, but. Uh, another, you know, trade suggestion, not a rumor, but, you know, national writers and what have you. 
you know, brought up the Pascal Siakam thing again this week. My question is simple. Uh, uh, let's assume Joel and, and Giannis are off the table. Uh, is Siakam still the best overall option, better than uh, Green, Butler, or anyone else we've talked about? Uh, or how does Siakam and Jalen Brown in particular, how would those shake out for you, that question? Yeah, I, I, it's interesting to look at. Um, I think both of those two, Siakam and Brown, would be the, the top two guys. My question would be, you know, what changed? You know, like, for example, with OG and Anubi, I know they were asking earlier this year for, was it like three draft picks, three first-round picks? Yeah, so, totally. Yeah, so I'm pretty sure it's going to be something similar, if not higher, for Siakam. So uh, the asking price might be a little bit too high, depending on what they want. But I think, yeah, if you have a chance to get those two guys and, and the price is right, you take it. So which one? Let's pretend you could have either for relatively the same price and it doesn't you see a path ahead that works for either uh, with who's left on the team. Which one would you prefer? Mm, that's tough. That's, that's like picking between the, the Lamborghini and the, uh, what's another fancy car? Uh, Corvette. Or Ferrari or whatever. Yeah. Because Lamborghini Corvette, I think you go Lamborghini. I don't know that much <laughs> about cars, but I know that one will resell for more anyway. Probably right. Uh, I'll probably go Jalen Brown though. Uh, just being a little bit younger. Um, I, I that's really what it, I think I, I want to focus on youth. Siakam, I think, is 28, uh, close to 29. So um, i go Brown in that situation. Yeah, probably for the same reason. I assume Brown would be more expensive. Although Brown has the advantage of not being his number one option. I mean, Siakam has been everything for the Raptors uh, ever since Kawhi left and was a key part of that championship. So, yeah, uh, I mean... Siakam, 24 points a game, but he's, he's almost 30. Yeah, well, he's 28. He's going to be, I think he turns, no, he's 29. He just turned 29. So, I mean, he is older. He's also got that championship pedigree. I don't know. There's something about him that is extra, but Brown is second team all NBA this year, right? I mean, you can't, can't argue too hard with that. I kind of worry about his mileage uh, from watching Toronto this year. It seemed like his numbers kind of slowed down. Like the more they played him, when they, they were playing him like heavy minutes, I think he was like number one in the league in minutes. And just thinking about Chauncey Billups and the way that he plays guys, heavy minutes. Um, I worry that that would be a problem. We saw with Jeremy Grant earlier this year, where his numbers were on a steep decline uh, after he played so many minutes. So I think even for that reason too, I'd, I'd take Brown, uh, but either one, you know, I can't really argue with you either one. So could either one coexist with Jeremy Grant? Oh, uh, I think Brown has a better chance. I think Siakam and, and Grant are a little bit more similar in size and stature. But, you know, if you can run out of lineup with Siakam, Grant, Lillard, whoever the backcourt guys are, that'd be fun to see too. But it's going to be hard to talk me into, into Siakam over Grant, though. Okay. So, last question, and it's purely speculative. Where do the Blazers end up in the draft lottery next week? It is Tuesday. Uh, that's going to happen before we talk again. What pick do they get? I think in a perfect world, you know, we get number one. Uh, Brandon Roy is going to be there representing the team. The basketball guys owe Portland for 40 years of, of misfortune and sadness. So it'd be, it'd be a nice end to that story to be able to finally get that, that top spot and to not only get the top spot, but also get some success out of that top spot. So um, I think that's, that's the perfect world situation. But I think realistically... Um, I'm thinking somewhere in that, that 
that four to six range, it'd be just just so Portland like for them to end up in that four to six range, and now you got a, a limbo to think about what you're gonna do there. And there's some good players there. I think this this draft class has a lot of you know uh, high energy guys, a lot of versatile guys that some of them need to pick up weight, some of them need to get better at shooting, but uh, lots of six seven, six eight, six nine guys that you can build around and, and see what you can do. But I think if you don't get the number one pick or the two pick, as I've said, I think you 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 make a trade. So it'd be a lot of speculation going on there. It'd be very Portland to end up in seven. Yeah. I'll go seven. You're going one and I'll go seven and we'll see who's close. <laughs> so there you have it. That made Marlo Ferguson, your favorite podcaster of the week. Uh, for Marlo, I'm Dave Deckard. And next week we'll be talking about lottery possibilities. Meanwhile, you can check out our draft pick reviews uh, on site and plenty more until then. We will see you and go Blazers get ping pong balls. <laughs>